going to invite you to turn your attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. We're going to be in the first part of that section this morning. Last week, our liturgist Dave Peoric preached a wonderful sermon with the title, Ultimate Reality. And he took a moment to compare how scientists are currently exploring the very fabric of our world, you know, all the things I don't understand, like atoms and protons and all that good stuff and quarks and, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and he, he compared that to how in the latter part of John chapter 16, that Jesus is inviting his disciples to see the ultimate reality that is the relationship of God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit that in divine community together are inviting us in um, to participate in this divine reality, this divine community. It's a very fabric of our existence. The ground of our very being is caught up in what Jesus is talking about in the upper room discourse here in the Gospel of John. And I really want to build on that this morning, just unpack, okay, so this ultimate reality, we see it in our scripture, but if you're like me, you still sometimes feel this disconnect, like how do I experience this ultimate reality? How do I participate in what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this text? This is some really important and big and beautiful stuff. And so it's my heart for you and for myself that we would learn how to go through uh, the gateways that God gives us in order to participate in this ultimate reality. And I, I think there's three here that can be named as we go through the text. These are ones you'll be familiar with. Goodness, beauty, and truth. Goodness, beauty, and truth. I'm actually going to start with beauty, and then we're going to go to goodness and then truth. And the reason for that is because that's what Jesus uh, does. He picks up these themes and he gives us a picture of what's happening with him and God in this part of his life. And he also gives us this wonderful picture of what the disciples are to do in their next step in response to his completion of his mission and now their taking up of the mission that he has instructed them and is now empowering them to take on. With that in mind, I'm going to read through the scripture, but I'm going to take it in three pieces today. So let me read to you the first piece here from John 17 says this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Oh, what? That is totally wrong. <laughs> Verse 1. Heather's going to kill me. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me, that's totally wrong. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may, be glor that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, 
that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. What an amazing insight that the disciples get to have. Picture this moment as the disciples are moving from the upper room where they experience communion together and Jesus has given them the teaching um, that we've read from, verse, uh, from chapter 14 up until now and now the disciples have moved their way up to the Mount of Olives and they're there at the top of the Mount of Olives which looks over all of Jerusalem on the eve of Christ's crucifixion and he stops teaching them directly and he turns to prayer. He turns to his heavenly father and the disciples get to listen in. They get to hear Jesus' prayer. There's been many other times in the scripture where Jesus has come back from prayer with his heavenly father And he's done these amazing things that they've seen. And they've been so curious. What happened, Jesus, with you in your prayer life that made this possible? And now they're getting to see firsthand what this prayer life is really like. And we see in this picture of this prayer that Jesus is praying for his glorification. He's asking God, God, would you glorify me in the way that you are glory and in the way that I participated in that glory since the very beginning of the world, since before the world began? And so one of the questions I want to ask as we explore ultimate reality as it's related to beauty as a gateway into um, understanding the glory of God. Let me read to you just a few verses from the Old Testament through to Revelation describing what the glory of God is like. Okay, so here, uh, this word from Psalm 52 says this. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Number 625, the Lord makes his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. Psalm 83, restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Psalm 119, 135, make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. Isaiah 61, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. Revelation 21, 23 says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So that's the picture of where we're headed. 
to a place where we actually don't even need the sun or the moon anymore because the glory of the Lord will be our direct light. Why do I read this to you? Because this helps us to get some background on when we talk about beauty, when you want to talk about glory and beauty and light, these pictures, these images all together are what draw humanity into a deeper understanding of who God is. The very face of God is the light of the world, shining on us, rising on us. The author John O'Donohue puts it in this way. He says, and this really does close the gap, I think, between what Dave was saying yes, last week about the scientific exploration of reality and the religious exploration of ultimate reality. And speaking of faith in a different way, he writes this, faith is attraction to the divine. Faith is attraction to the divine. For too long, faith has been presented as a weak form of knowledge. Yet whilst faith seems feeble in the realm of evidence and proof, beauty always attracts us. It makes our sensibility in a way that makes us respond. Like you can't, you can't deny it. When you look at something truly beautiful, something happens inside of you, doesn't it? Our response to beauty is unlabored. Even in unknown ways, our lives are charged with attraction towards divine beauty. You were made to go towards beauty, the beauty of God. The infinity of the beauty which is God is a feast for the soul. So your soul is nourished by beauty. It's what gives it life and animation. The beauty of God increases and deepens our own beauty. So when we worship, when we are open to the beauty of God, the glory of God, then our own beauty is revealed. Our own goodness and truth comes out. We enter the secret symmetry of the divine imagination, meaning that God made the world in a particular way. And so when we live in that way, then we are participating in the divine life. And when we consider faith as a response to divine beauty, we begin to glimpse its creativity and its passion. Faith is no blind piety, but a primal attraction, the deepest resonance of the self drawn to the elegance of its ancient origin. Now, I know those are big words. But in the, within them is this deep truth that you resonate with beauty because it is the truest thing about you. You were made by this beauty, and so you resonate to beauty because it is your origin. It is the place that you come from and the place that you belong to. Faith has its own aesthetic of dignity, light, and proportion. That means that when we understand the beauty of God, then we understand that beauty creates meaning and purpose 
and light for all of creation. It's the thing that gives dignity to the whole world. Something in us senses and knows how perfectly the contours of the soul fit the divine embrace. It is the deepest dream of the soul to be in the intimacy of divine beauty. At that depth, an atmosphere of elegance presides. Such a profound attraction turns the body into a force field of divine quickening. Meaning that when you're there, maybe you've had this experience, maybe you get goosebumps You feel elation, you feel this sense of awe. It's there that you feel the Holy Spirit speak to you. The whole self is taken up in the embrace of divine tenderness and you feel that that this is the place of belonging, that this is a good place to be in this beauty, in this love. And then he finishes by saying this classic image for this encounter of God and the soul is that of, of the lover and the beloved. So as Dave was teaching and we've been unpacking for the last few weeks that, that the ultimate relationship is lover and beloved. This loving ground of all being. Dostoevsky, who's also known for a lot of words, made this very simple when he said this, beauty will save the world. Beauty will save the world. So if you want to know ultimate reality, then my invitation for you today is to be caught up in this beauty, in this beauty that Jesus is praying about, this beauty of the glory of God revealed in the face of God that lights up the whole world. And Jesus willfully surrendered his rightful place in heaven this place of glorification, so that he could come, teach, and accomplish his mission on earth. And then he is ready. He says, the hour has come. I'm going to go back to the Father. And then he's praying for what will happen when he goes back to the Father, which is he will receive his glory again and then go back to his rightful place with the Father. Okay, so the first entryway into experiencing the divine reality is through the beauty of God. The second I want to explore with you is goodness, the goodness of God. In order to do that, let me read to you the next part of this scripture. It says this, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they, w- they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave so that, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. 
None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so the scripture would be fulfilled. A friend of mine provided me a definition of goodness this week. He said, good is the function to mean something functioning according to its design. Goodness is something functioning according to its design. Did you hear Jesus' prayer? Not yet for the world, we'll get to that, but for the disciples. That they may be one as we are one. So the goodness then would be bound up in this unity. Because that's what we're designed for. That's what Jesus prays we would return to. And now, it's not hard for me to give you the background here that you all know that there are over 4,000 Protestant denominations in the world, right? That the world tries to shape us in its image of division and tribalism and separateness, tries to break us off from this reality to isolate us and to make us feel alone and separate. That's easy to do, right? It's really easy to participate in division. But Jesus' prayer for our goodness is that we as disciples of Jesus Christ would actually move in the direction of coming together, of learning how to be one as a community. Even though there are many parts and many differences, that the movement of God is one of moving us closer together into this divine reality of our true nature as made to be connected. Martin Luther King Jr., writes about this beautifully. He says, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Now I read that to you, and I think, I think maybe your soul says yes, but your world says no. That how often do we actually live into this emotional picture that we could respond to when our neighbor is succeeding and loving and doing well in the world and flourishing, that that is for us. And when our neighbor is hurting and broken, that we are also hurting and broken. This is the interconnected nature of all things, that what you do affects me and what I do affects you, and therefore we're all tied up together. The church of the last century has done a bad job of communicating this reality and said, our spirituality is more individual. 
more just me praying my prayer and getting to go to heaven. There's nothing wrong with that. But when it's about your individual salvation, but it is not about the salvation of all people, that your salvation is tied up in the mission of God to save all people, then we miss it. Only God can reveal this to us. Let me show you a a picture of a plaque in Louisville, Kentucky. My research has said that this is the only plaque in all of America that tells of a divine encounter with God right in the middle of Kentucky. It was, uh, it's, it's a place where Thomas Merton had an insight. Let me read to you what he wrote, just on an everyday, ordinary day as he was walking through the mall. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, and that, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness, This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. Shining like the sun. I love how this image from scripture was something that Merton experienced right there in Kentucky. Right in the middle of his day. Maybe you know this experience. I was sharing this idea with a friend. And she said, yes, there's sometimes where I can feel that, de- I could be in a crowd of people, and I can feel that deep love and connection for all people. And then there are sometimes when I'm in a crowd of people and I feel totally alone. Maybe you can relate to those two experiences. So another gateway into experiencing ultimate reality would be to allow yourself to be what you were designed to be, to be connected, inextricably connected to each other, to God, and to all of creation. Finally, this, this last bit, starting in verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. 
Your word is truth, and you sent me into the world. I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Another gateway into ultimate reality is to realize that the truth protects us. That the truth is there to show us the way in our life. And as we walk in the way that God has intended, we experience God's protection. That God is there to take care of us. You, you hear this in his words, the good shepherd taking care of his flock, these just few disciples that he knows are going out to a world that is hostile to them. His prayer for them is that they would not be overwhelmed by the world, that the evil one would not get them and that they would be able to be sanctified. And then he says, I'm going to go first. I will go first in this harder reality that I must die so that the world may be forgiven. But I'm also inviting these disciples into this same sanctification, into the same process of death and resurrection. And somehow that's caught up in the full measure of his joy. How do these words go together? The full measure of my joy, the world hated them, sanctify them. A.W. Tozer, I think, brings it together beautifully when he says, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. That the joys of life are given, and also the tragedies of life are given, and in all of those things we participate with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who knew true and pure joy, and who knew total and utter suffering and sacrifice. All of those things come to make us more Christ-like. And if we get that, then the thing that plagues our society more than anything else in an age of anxiety is the thing that we get to lay down. To say, I no longer need to feel anxious because I live in the reality and the truth of why the world was made to live and to love like Jesus designed me to do. One final picture here. This is, as some of you know, one of my favorite artists and missionaries uh, is, a, is a woman named Lilius Trotter. And she went out to Albania when no one was there. Um, and she did mission out there and she was trained to be a uh, artist, but she renounced that in order to become a missionary, but she kept painting in her journals, and her journals were discovered, and one day she was really tired. Um, some friends had left, and she was sitting there, and she was uh, just contemplating, and this picture came. We all know this picture of a dandelion, and I know it well because in my yard there's too many of them, because you know how kids like to pick them up and blow on them, and they just go everywhere, and then what happens, guaranteed, they spread. Right? And she, she was clued into this picture, and she used it as a way to think about her discipleship 
and I think it really relates to what Jesus is talking about with his disciples. She wrote this, Measure thy life by loss and not by gain. Not by the wine drunk, but the wine poured forth. For love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice, and he who suffers most has most to give. Now, outside of the context of the other things I said, this makes no sense. You should not strive to give yourself away in resentment and frustration, thinking that somehow you get to be the hero. But in the context of Jesus Christ, going first, giving his wine, pouring himself out for the world, it makes all the sense that then we could stand there and think of our lives like a dandelion and the Holy Spirit blowing on all those beautiful little whatever they are (laughs) out and then those seeds go out and they grow and make more and more and more as we give ourselves away. Final thought is this as it leads us into worship. Lilia Strotter actually wrote in one of her journals a line that turned into a song that we're going to sing together. She wrote this, Turn your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at him, and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. Another uh, woman in the 1920s read this line from her journals, and she wrote the song, Fix Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Because these are great callings in our life, but in reality, there's only one needed response to the great beauty of these prayers that Jesus prayed for his disciples. And that is to put our attention on Jesus and to let everything else fade away. To just let Jesus do the work. With that in mind, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful word that you have given us. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes upon you, to look full in your wonderful face, a face that shines a light of beauty and goodness and truth into the world that we want to participate in, that we want to be about. Lord, as we worship you, would you work on our hearts so that we can become more and more like you each and every day. Precious and holy name we pray. Amen.